We'll continue in Revelation. We have made the point that this book is pretty simple in that it makes a very clear point. And it says this is the revelation Jesus gave to His Apostle John to give on to the churches. And it's to His servants. Jesus gave this revelation to His servants so that they could hear, understand, and do. And what He wants us to do is be good witnesses. That's the formula of the book. It's pretty simple. In the course of giving us this simple message, He's going to tell us a lot of things that are not so simple, having to do with the end of the age. But the overall message is also still very simple. And that is, God's already got it ordered. It's in control. The outcome will be His. However, how we play the role that we have to play is yet to be determined. I'm sure this analogy is woefully inadequate, but it's sort of like God has the bracket for 2020 March Madness already filled out. But it remains to be seen which kids are going to put in the 10,000 hours that it takes to be on those teams that are going to be in that bracket. Something like that. Today what I'm going to do is start with Ephesus. I'm going to do Ephesus twice. We've already done the seven churches from the standpoint of the historical eras that they can represent. And I gave you a model for that. And now I'm going to go through Ephesus to show you the pattern that every one of these letters take. And then I go back and actually talk about Ephesus. To the angel of the churches of Ephesus, write. So every one of these letters starts with a, a memo kind of a format to all office employees. And so it's to the messenger of the church of Ephesus. And then it's from. The next thing's from. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampsticks. So it doesn't just say from Jesus. It's from some characteristic, some description of Jesus. So it would be sort of like if you had a memo that went out and said to all office employees from the person who can fire you all. You know, he's making a point of this is a position that I hold. And the way he describes himself is going to have a correlation to the way the message in the letter is, is constructed. It's going to have a parallel. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. You've persevered, have patience, have labored for my name's sake, have not become weary. So this is the next part. So we got the to, from, and then the commendation. And this commendation is in all of the letters save one. There's one church that doesn't get a commendation. So the first thing he tells them is, hey, you're doing some really good things. It's two from commendation. And then the next thing's an exhortation. But you have these issues that you need to work with. And two, le- two churches do not get an exhortation. They don't get a, but you need to work on this. But five of them do. So then he says to the Ephesians, nevertheless... So you've done all these good things, nevertheless, I have this against you, you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you're fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So you've got a a to, from, a commendation, an exhortation, and then a consequence of some kind, or or an exhortation to do something or else. So you need to remember and do the first works here, or I will. That's the pattern. And then in this case, he says, but this you have, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which is out of, out of the normal pattern, but I'll talk about that in a second. And then he ends with, listen, understand, do. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to him overcomes, I will give you to eat through the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So listen, listen to what the Spirit says. And it's interesting, he always says, listen to what the Spirit says. Now, typically what he'll say is, there is to this church, and then he'll talk in the plural, the church is doing this and the church is doing that. And he'll maybe, maybe he'll make some specific references to a group within the group, but it's still plural. And then he comes down to the end, and he says, everybody listen, what the Spirit says, which is interesting because it's from Jesus. So it says, to church, from Jesus, listen to the Spirit. Which that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus is speaking, but the Spirit's the teacher. So it's got an external message, but really... The internal understanding comes from the Spirit. But this overcomer to him who is an overcome is singular. So he talks to the church as a, as a whole, and then he brings it down to an individual application to each person in the church and to us. So we can learn from the overall, and we need to play our part in the overall, because that's our job as believers in the body, is to serve the rest of the body. But ultimately, we can only make a choice for us. And so... He talks about overcomes. In each, each case, all seven letters, he says, to him who overcomes, I will, and then makes a promise of some sort. So, in this pattern, I think it's important since what God is doing here is giving us an exhortation of listen, understand, do. There's a rationale that he's given in every one of these letters. And when he says, to the overcomer I will give, since he's talking singular, this is a particularly important message for us to understand because he's speaking directly to us, not just about this era or about this kind of church. What is an overcomer? So I want to nail this down before I go back and actually dive into the church at Ephesus. Well, overcomer is a translation of a word... In Greek, nikeo, N-I-K-E-A-O. Its root is Nike, which is the Greek god of? Tennis shoes. shoes. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Victory. Greek goddess of victory. If you ever see Nike, Nike always has wings. Why does Nike have wings? Victory's fleeting. It's always flying from one thing to the next, right? Oh, we won. No, half-court shot. The other team won. <laughs> so, Nike is victory. Nikeo is one who's victorious. I want to show you other uses and revelation of Nikeo. And I think this will give you a really good feel for this word. Because God is going to ask us to do some difficult things. And what He's telling us is, it's worth it. Okay? Listen. Understand, do. Now, you've heard me say this many times, but there's only three things in life we get to control. Everything else is not in our control. We get to control who we trust. We get to control the perspective we choose to have. And we get to control the actions we take. Much of our anxiety comes about because we're trying to control things we can't control, like other people's choices. So what God is doing is giving us a perspective that if we will adopt this perspective we will have a much more functional life because he's telling us what a true perspective is. We were talking last night, we were talking about uh, substance abuse. And the person we were talking at at the table said, you know, it's hard for me to get my mind around why substance abuse. I have a hard time understanding that, but I have to understand, I have to realize that to them it is rational. And that's absolutely accurate. Anytime someone is taking an action of some sort, it is rational. 
People don't make irrational choices. It's rational because it fits the perspective they've adopted. If that perspective is untrue, then it will be a destructive path that they take, but it will be rational based on their perspective. God is giving us a true perspective here and giving us the opportunity to hear, understand, and do. Well, one of the things we want to understand is what it means to be an overcomer and why this is such a big deal. It says it seven times. Be an overcomer. If you're an overcomer, this will happen. So let's look at Revelation 5.5. 5. Revelation 5.5. 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Nakeo has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. See, Jesus has overcome. He's won. He's won the, oper- the, the right to open these scrolls. Let's look at Revelation 6, 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. This is the horseman of the apocalypse. I saw a lamb, seals, and one of the four living creatures. Yep. And I looked, and I behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out to conquering and to conquer. Nikeo. Conquering. Overcoming. Prevailing. Let's look at 11.7. This is all in, just in Revelation, the use of this word. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them, nakeo them, and kill them. So to subdue someone such that they die, nakeo. You have a fight, the other person dies. That's nakeo. Their bodies will lie in the street in the great city. So these are believers being killed. Let's look at 12.11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Nakeo overcame. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. So this is believers dying, but they are the ones winning. So Satan overcomes them with physical death, but he they overcome him with spiritual life and the testimony that they have. So victory again. 15.2 And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast. Nakeo, victory. Over his image and over his mark. So Nakeo, victory, winning. Revelation 17.14 These will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them, nakeo them. The Lamb will win. The Lamb will defeat them. So you see the idea here? This is winning and losing. How many people in here fill out a bracket and then don't care whether your team wins or not? Just completely don't care. How how many people in here play a board game and and, and want to lose? Winning is built into us. We like to win. One of the main reasons people struggle with materialism is because in our society, accumulation of stuff is considered winning, even though it's stuff you've got to maintain and don't use. And And it's bothersome and gets in your way and creates clutter. And you wonder, why do we have this stuff? That's because it's winning. In our society, it's a wrong perspective, but that's the perspective we get. So this is how to win at life. Jesus is writing this letter to his servants. Now, he doesn't say, here's how to become a servant, or here's how to remain a servant. Servants are servants. Some servants win. Some servants don't win. So that's what we're talking about here. Winning at life. Having a life that you look back on and say, 
that was a victorious life or a life that you look back on and say, I really wasted my opportunity. Now, I played basketball. I was good enough to start on my high school basketball team, mostly because I happened to be tall. I look back on my life and I think, you know, I could have really been good if I would have worked at it. But I didn't. I was too lazy. I just worked enough to get to that, that point. Well, it's not something I have a tremendous amount of regret at because I realize my genetics made me tall, but I kind of know what really, really good looks like now, and I wasn't going to get there. But I wasted an opportunity to learn something through that and learn some discipline, learn other things. I think that's a little microcosm of what we're going to go through when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, which we'll talk more about. Okay, now let's, so let's go back through Ephesians. We've got the salutation to, from, commendation, exhortation, and then the consequence, and then this reward. What's the reward? And they're all going to fit together. So to the angel, the messenger, the person who's going to give the message at the church of Ephesus, write, these things who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampsticks. So why does Jesus use that particular description? I think it's because these things are witnesses. The lampstand is something that shows light at night. We had the privilege of going to the ruins of Ephesus. It's really cool because Ephesus was a port city, import-export, and the seacoast moved. The harbor silted up and the coast moved. And so that location didn't have any use for them anymore, so they just moved the city. And a lot of times, you know, they keep building cities on top of cities and they got to dig down and you'll see little excavations of a part of it that's 10 feet or 15 feet below you or something. Well, this is all just there. The town's there. No, some of it's been carted off someplace to build something else. You know, recycling is nothing new in the world. But the auditorium there, or the amphitheater rather, where the riot took place and they great as Artemis of the Ephesians and all the people yelled and they were having to protect Paul from getting trampled and stuff. That, that amphitheater is still there. It's really cool. And one of the things you can see on the street that they'll point out to you if you get to go is that hole in the streets where they would put the lampstand. Because this was a Roman city, a Greco-Roman city, a Greek-Roman city where they had indoor plumbing and street lights. And so they would put these lamps in the street so this would light the way at night. A star, as you know, is something the navigators sail by. It's something you can tell your direction by. So these messengers that Jesus holds in his hands, he's choosing who are going to be his guides for other people. And these lampstands, he's choosing which churches are going to be his example. And what we've seen is the consequence of these people not remembering and doing the first works is he's going to say, I don't need you as my example anymore. I don't need you as my witness. That's how it's going to fit in. So to the people at Ephesus, from the one who decides whether your lamp stands in place or not. I know your works, verse 2, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and have tested those who say they are apostles and not, and found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and has not become weary. Now this is a very, very terrific list. To just call this the loveless church, as my particular translation does, I just don't think it's fair. I, I think it's better to call this the underperforming church or the truth church. Because look what these people are doing. They're standing for what's true. Something's evil, we stand against it. 
We have a false teacher come in. You know, what most people do with false teachers is accommodate them. Standing up against an authority that's saying something that's incorrect is a difficult thing to do. It creates division. It creates political wars. But you know what? Jesus commends that because we are not to put up with false teaching. And these people came in as apostles and they found them to be liars and they exposed them. And this is something that he commends them. In fact, after he says, nevertheless, I have this against you, he makes it clear that, listen, I'm not asking you to start compromising your truth stand. Because after he chastises them, he says in verse 6, but this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You stand for what's true. I like that. I'm going to tell you to do something else, but I'm reiterating, I want you to keep standing for what's true. Now, what is it that he chastises them for? Verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from your place unless you repent. So there's something here that they're not doing, that we're doing, and now they've kind of backslidden. And if they don't restore that thing, then you can't be my witness. So even though you're still standing for truth, there's something else you have to do if you want to be my testimony, if you want to be the witness I want you to be. And that is to remember your first love. Now what is this? Well, love here is the word agape. Agape is used for love in addition to two other words. Phileo is the the primary other word that's used. And phileo is more of an affection love, a brotherly love. I have affection for you. Agape is used two different ways. One is when you're making a choice to do something in someone else's best interest. Love is patient. You can only exercise patience under one circumstance. What is it? Yeah, there's a difficulty. An irritation of some kind, right? No irritation, no patience. No one ever goes into a massage studio and says, look at that person just laying there patiently. What What incredible patience they have. And they never say that. Why? It's not irritating to sit there with have somebody rub on you. That's enjoyable, right? Except when she does it. And then it hurts. You know, like with elbow. You know. Remember, therefore, and repent. You know. So there's that use of agape. And then there's the use of agape in what you esteem. The Pharisees agapied the place of Prominent. And I think that's the one we're looking at here. You have forgotten who the main person is you're trying to please here. Now, think about how easy this is to do. And let's go back to the historical model where the church of Ephesus represents this period of 33 to 100 from the Pentecost to the last apostle. During this time period, three different letters are written that go to this very point. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. We could look at Galatians in particular because it kind of sums it up in one verse in Galatians 2.17, which says, paraphrasing, if you seek to justify yourself when you're found to be a sinner, who do you have to blame but yourself? Because when we're already believers, we're already justified before God. Why? Because Jesus did the justification for us. So when we seek to justify ourselves further, Who are we seeking to justify ourselves before? If we're seeking to justify ourselves before God, then we're saying Jesus wasn't enough. 
And if we're seeking to justify ourselves before men, then we're saying we care more about what people think than what God thinks. And it's simple as it can be to slip into that. And maybe another way to say it is, I'm good because I'm right. So when we stand for truth, it's the right thing to do. But if we stand for truth so we can show we're right and you're wrong, we slip into the Ephesian church. How easy is that? How many can say amen to that? Haven't you done it many times? It's, it's as natural as... What is natural? Breathing. Breathing. Thank you very much. It's as natural as breathing. So what they're doing here is sliding back from who they really ought to be agaping, which is Christ. Now, there's another way that people think about this, of losing your first love, if you, you've lost your passion for other people. And that's okay too, because if we seek to please God first, if that's our main agape, what is it the main thing that God wants us to do? Love other people. And I want to show you something that I think you'll find very interesting, and that is just to kind of flip through the letter to the Ephesians. Let's just look at it briefly. Look at 1.15, Ephesians 1.15. Therefore, I also, this is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Now, this letter in Revelation is written something like 90 A.D., 90 to 100 A.D., and this letter to the Ephesians is written decades before. So perhaps there was a time when these guys are really known for loving one another, and by the time of John in the Revelation, it's gone cold. Look at 3.17. Let's look at 3.17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints that's the love of God, which then goes to 4.2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, in love, 4.15, but speak the truth in love, may grow up into those who, to the head, and effectively working every part of the body, which is the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Love your wife. Love your children. So Ephesians is an exhortation. You're loving, keep on loving. And perhaps the reason he wrote this book is because they're a good example, or this letter, because they're a really good example of love, and he understands how hard it is to keep doing that. Perhaps it's the Holy Spirit saying, you're under temptation to let this go cold. Don't let it go cold. By the time we get to Revelation, it's gone cold. And they're into self-justification, which is what the first church era did. 33 to 100. Well, how, how does that apply to us? As Bible church people, we are focused on truth, are we not? Anything wrong with that? You see any compromise in this about truth? But here's the deal. If we're just right, if that's all we do is focus on being right, then we're not the witness that God wants. What does He want us to do? He wants us to be right and to focus on pleasing Him not justifying ourselves before other people. That's a real challenge. I think we've made some great progress in our church. But you know what happens if we start resting? We just fall back. And if we want to be like a church 
that's shining a light into the world and is being a testimony to the world, then we not only need to stand for what's true, rooting out falsehood, standing against authorities that are perverse or wrong, we also need to focus on pleasing Christ first and acting on behalf of other people as our first love. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Only through the power of the Spirit can we even understand this or do it. And then he says to us, him who overcomes. Well, in this case, what are we overcoming? I would say we're overcoming self. We're overcoming the typical nature we have in us, our own flesh, to be right. And we're saying, I'm going to lay down my rightness without sacrificing rightness and focus on serving others in love rather than justifying myself as opposed to them. That may mean that you speak the truth to them and they stab you in the back for it. That absolutely may mean that. Often it's easier to just accommodate people than to speak to them. Or it may mean you decide now is not the time. I'll wait till another time. How do you decide that? You decide that by following the Spirit. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. So now here's how to have victory. Here's how to win at life. Anybody interested in winning at life? I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now when I get to this point, me for my ears, and I say, yes, I want to win. What do I win? What is on my raffle ticket? What is behind the door? I get door number three. Door number three opens up and there's a tree there. And I say, hmm, couldn't I have had something else? You know, that, doesn't, that just doesn't sound that great. So let's just unpack what this might be. It needs to be something that would motivate me to overcome self and love to fit into this letter. Fair enough? I'm going to suggest something that it could be. And I'm going to look at... Proverbs 3.18. Let's look at Proverbs 3.18. Now we're talking in Proverbs 3.18. And let's start with 3.13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. The man who gains understanding. This sort of fits, right? Because Revelation, I want you to hear and understand. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver. Her gain than fine gold. We're actually going to see this same idea in the letter to the Laodiceans. She, wisdom, is more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who retain her. She is a tree of life. So if wisdom is a tree of life... Now maybe we have a link. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. In fact, Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden because of that tree of life. Because God said, hmm, now that they are dead, if they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever. What do you call someone who's dead but lives forever? A zombie, yes. So zombies were in the very first part of Genesis. You thought they were new. So God says, I'm not going to let these people become zombies. So I'm going to exile them from the garden. Because the tree of life was a means of immortality. 
an expanded life. The thing everybody's always looking for, like the the Spanish explorers came over looking for the fountain that would give them immortality. It's kind of a long-time dream of people. And, of course, you know Indiana Jones was looking for the Holy Grail, the cup that would give eternal life, right? That's what everybody looks for. This is it. This is how you get it. You get it through wisdom. Because wisdom gives you the kind of life you're looking for. It's not being dead forever that you're looking for. It's having phenomenal quality of life where death can't touch you. And if you live a life of wisdom, then all the death of the world has no power. It has no influence over you. You know, there's all kinds of death in the world. There's death of relationships. Uh, how, do you, how do you kill a relationship? What's the easiest way to kill a relationship? Make life about me. That's one thing I can kill a relationship. Because why? If Herman's trying to make life about him and we're trying to have a relationship, that blocks me being able to make life about me. I call it the two ticks and no dog relationship. (laughs) Get that image in your mind really solidly. So, yeah, you can kill a relationship just by sucking out of it and then it'll die. Uh, You can kill a relationship with deceitfulness. You can kill a relationship with treason or stealing. There's all kinds of ways you can kill a relationship, isn't there? Well, all, all that has to do with lack of wisdom. And it brings death into your life, into your existence. If we take this revelation path, and we take not only truth, but also love and serving other people, what is that going to bring to a relationship? Let's just go back to Ephesians again. And just take a look at what Jesus says about love and marriage. Ephesians 5, 22. Now you've heard this many times at probably every wedding you've been to. But if we look at it in the context of Revelation chapter 2, maybe it'll give you a little different flavor and a little different color. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's head of the wife is also Christ as head of the church. And he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. So the, here is the wife doing something outside of self for the benefit of husband. And it brings life to the marriage. It brings wisdom. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So here is husband laying down life for the benefit of wife. What does that look like? that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. What do men not like to do with women? Use words and talk, right? That's, it's fun to talk with men because you use mostly grunting noises and uh, sarcasm and accusations and ribbing, right? And that's fun. But like talking about feelings and relationships and stuff like that, kind of painful for men. With women. And with women, it's a source of life. And so here's a man saying, I will engage with wife using words. And what is, my, what is my purpose for using words? So she'll get off my back? Is that my purpose? No. Cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he, Jesus, may present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And we all know what men think about their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. 
So by using words, investing in wife, the husband is saying, I want you to be everything you can be. I want to raise you up to your maximum potential and I'm willing to invest in you using words to do that. Wife is saying, I want to elevate you to the maximum potential you can be. I want to lift you up. I I want to show you how much respect I can give you. Now what's going to happen to that relationship? When you've got wife respecting unrespectable husband and you've got husband listening to unlistenable to wife, you're going to have oneness what's going to happen. And a tree of life is going to bloom up. And wisdom is going to happen. And you're going to see truth and love taking place right before your eyes. That's what's going to happen. So I think what Jesus is telling us here is there's something about life, something about intimacy with our husband, because we're all wives in this relationship. If we will elevate him to the top respect, and and in this case, he actually deserves it. You know, the women are being asked to elevate somebody that doesn't deserve it to a position of respect. That takes immense faith. But do it for Jesus. And so when we, collectively, as wives, say, I'm going to put you first, I'm going to agape you, I'm going to stand for what's true, but I'm going to agape you, Jesus is saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring you into my sphere, and we're going to have oneness, life like you've never known it. Now what does that mean about people who are not overcomers? It means that's an opportunity that's missed and gone. This life is the only time in our experience we get to know God by faith. Now, I do not think anybody will miss out on knowing God by sight. I think everybody will have that. And we have this illusion that that will be better. But the angels are craning their necks, looking down, trying to understand God through watching us. The principalities and powers are learning about the manifold wisdom of God from us. And they've been in the presence of God for eons of time. There's something about knowing God by faith they can't get their arms around because they can't experience it. We won't be able to either. Faith, hope, and love are the three great things. And only love remains. You cannot hope for what you have and you can't believe in what you see. Knowing God by faith is going to substantially enhance our experience in the new earth. And what God is telling us here is, look, I know it's a lot easier to self-justify I know it's the natural progression to do, but if you don't put in the work of loving to go along with being right, I just can't use you as my witness. And you're not winning at life. Winning at marriage requires laying down so you can lift up. Winning at relationships requires laying down so you can lift up. And if we do, we're winning. That's how you win. Listen. Hear, do, be my witnesses. It's a very simple formula. God, thank you for this amazing exhortation and commendation. And I pray that we will be people who uncompromisingly embrace the truth, but do not forget the main thing we want to do is please you, not self-justify. And that the main thing we want to do to please you is love others, starting right in our own families and right in our own marriages. Jesus, I pray that you would... Fill us with your Spirit so that we can hear, we can understand, we can do. In Jesus' name, amen.